worshiping together, shall we? How many know he's great today? We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It was that writer that said, and his name shall be called Wonderful. You could stop right there and describe in one word who the Lord is. He is full of wonder. There's no way that we can exhaust who he is. There's no way that we can measure his mercy or his grace. Aren't you thankful that God is a wonderful God? He's a great God. Clap your hands together one more time. Touch your neighbor and say, good to see you in Sunday school. Amen. Haven't you been enjoying revival? I'm telling you, the Holy Ghost is doing a great work. Amen. Tonight, or rather this week, we'll have service tonight with Brother Poe, uh, then normal service Wednesday night. Next week will be Sunday and Monday uh, as well. And so just make plans to be here and bring somebody to the house of the Lord with you. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to just continue walking through the book of Acts. I do encourage you to bring your Bible to church. That's like going to a gunfight without a gun. I don't care if you got to bring one of your ten from home. Leave it on your seat. Just try to do everything you can to follow along. I, I know we provide these. But there's something about just going along in your Bible that just, it, it's something special about the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Sister Joyce and our music team for leading us in worship. Amen. We're going to pick up where we left off here just a few weeks ago in the book of Acts chapter 5. I want Brother Brandon begin reading with verse 34 of Acts chapter 5. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to, be, to put the apostles forth a little space. And he said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up, rose up Thetis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain in all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone. For if this counsel or, or, or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. So in this particular setting, there is a man named Gamaliel who was a Pharisee. And he is held in such high respect that the Sadducee dominated Sanhedrin listens to his advice. We could say that he's not a novice. 
He knows what he's talking about. He's, he's been around for a while, and his perspective is that men and their movements come and go. So if the situation is simply left alone, it'll pass. And he gives some examples. He said there was a man named the Theodos who boasted himself to be somebody. You know, one thing I've learned about people is it is innate in people to believe in something. People want to believe in something. And that's why you have cults popping up. Is because there was people that wanted to believe in something and they found someone that came along as the leader and they joined themselves to that individual. And so here's this man seasoned. That's what he was basically saying was, look, I, I, I've seen some of this come and go. There was this one guy who got to himself about 400 people, got him a little following, and then he was slain, and they all just scattered. And then there was, a, there was an, a, another one that got him a following, and then they scattered. And he said, if this thing is the real deal, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to maintain. And it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how hard we fight. If it is of the Lord, then nobody can stop it. But if it's not of God, then you just leave it alone and it'll fizzle. You know, I have seen, I remember when I was a youth pastor, I was born an old soul. I was never trendy. I was never into fads. I didn't, I just, that wasn't me. I just knew how to go to prayer and get a word from the Lord and preach that word. And in my area, there was one particular church that was exploding. Their youth group was exploding. And I remember, I knew the guy, and I remember going over there one day with a new convert that I had, and I'd been working with, and we walked in to their youth room, which was their old church facility, and they had the latest of the latest. They had all of these strobe lights. They had smoke machines. They had all of this stuff that was attracting a crowd. And they was running between 100 and 150 from the school there. And now these kids weren't going to church. They were just showing up for youth service. And I remember hearing all of the numbers and numbers and numbers. So you can't get fixated on numbers. Because that doesn't necessarily mean a church is growing. And I remember walking out, talking to that guy, saying, man, I guess we need to, we need to get this or we need to get that. And he just, here's a new convert. He said, we don't need none of that stuff. And I'm like, well, I guess you're right. We don't need none of that. Because we were running about 40. And I remember just praying about it, saying, if this is of the Lord, then that's going to last. But if it's not, it's going to blow away with the wind. And it wasn't a couple of years. 
That, that, and I'm not saying this boastfully because those are souls, and I'm not rejoicing over souls that are walking away from the Lord. That's, don't misread what I'm saying. But even that youth pastor now is not even living for God, and all of that stuff fizzled. We got to make sure that what we do is of the Lord. Because if it's built upon the rock and God is the one that's governing this thing, then there is nothing the world can do to stop the church. Amen. It said the gates of hell will prevail against the church. But I have seen the gates of hell prevail against some churches. See the difference? The gates of hell won't prevail against God's church. Didn't say anything about a denomination. Didn't say anything about the, uh, a particular church building or church body. But because I have seen hell overtake some churches because they were not genuine. They were not being led of the Lord. And so Gamaliel says, if this thing's of God, we can't stop it. 2 Corinthians 13 and 8 says, For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Amen. Keep reading. Verse 40. And to him they agreed, and when they called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to preach, teach, and preach Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 10, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. See, we don't, we don't think of persecution as a blessing. We think of it as a bad thing. We're being persecuted. And, and I don't know what... Um, what, what the time holds for America. I do know that there are places where if they're going to live for God, they have to do it in secret. They have to do it underground. But should the day come where persecution comes to America, then we have to keep this scripture in mind. That if, if we face persecution for the gospel's sake, then that's not something to hang our head down about. But that's something that Jesus said, you better rejoice because you're counted worthy to endure such affliction and persecution for the sake of the gospel. Now, if they hated Jesus, then who are we to think that they're going to love us? You know, people didn't like Jesus. They liked him as long as he was doing stuff for them. But when his righteousness revealed their unrighteousness, they didn't like that. And people will be friends with you until you start taking stands for righteousness. Because by you standing for righteousness, it exposes their unrighteousness. And so you'll see people start distancing themselves from you. Don't reach out to those people. 
Why would you want to gather someone that is not walking with you towards the same direction? God says, I want righteousness. What fellowship have righteousness with unrighteousness? Amen. Chapter 6, verse 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecian of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called unto the multitude of the, of the disciples unto them, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among ye seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the, multi the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, these were Grecians. Grecians were Greek-speaking Jews from other nations. And the dilemma was this. The church was growing, and the 12 disciples realized we've got a problem. We will stunt our own growth if we do not change our methods. The church is getting bigger than what we can handle. And so they called all the other disciples together. And they said, now listen, I'm paraphrasing. We've got so much now to do to meet the demands of the growth, they said, what good is it for us to go serve tables? Now, they were not saying we don't want to serve because their loyalty was not in question. What they were saying is, if we get so bogged down with the duties that we will neglect what God told us to do, which is feed the flock, prayer and the word. And so they said, we have got to adjust our method to match the growth. And so they chose people, spiritual leaders, that could maybe not were not called to preach, but could take care of the duties of the church. Now I've seen churches that squash their own growth because the people didn't want to adjust or the preacher did not want to adjust. And I will say it like this. A man cannot pastor a hundred like he pastors 30. Can't do it. Just like an employer cannot manage 20 like he managed two. Can't do it. And the church has to have the ability to adjust its mindset. Not that the pastor loves you less, but that he loves you enough to realize he can't do it all. 
One of the things when I, when I got here, I didn't know anybody. And I have this mental tendency to want things a certain way. And if it's not that way, then it's wrong. I'm not saying that's the right way. I'm just saying that's how my brain works. And so when I got here, I wanted to do everything. It didn't take me long, Brother Wayne, to realize that I, there's only so much energy that this body has. I can't do it all. And so I've had to learn how to start what they call, uh, hold on, starts with a D. Delegate. I knew it started with a D. To delegate. And I learned that a good plan in action is better than a perfect plan on paper. Because we can sit there and tweak a program and tweak this and tweak that and never do anything, but if we can just get the ball rolling, we'll figure out all the kinks along the way. But it takes a church to realize as we grow, have anybody noticed that we've been growing a little bit? We had 215 just a couple of Sunday nights ago. And, and, and don't ask me when we're going to build because I'm still praying about when we're going to build. But it's coming because we're going to stunt our own growth if we don't start getting the ball rolling. But the, the, the disciples were mature enough to realize that our priority is to feed the sheep. Our priority is prayer and to get a word from God. And it doesn't mean they couldn't do anything that was, if they were called upon to do. You got to realize, I come from fixing toilets, changing light bulbs, vacuuming, sweeping, putting up tables, serving. That's where I come from. That's, that's who I am at the core. That's why most of the time I call it mindless task. I'll get a vacuum cleaner when nobody's up here and I'll just start going around vacuuming because it's that's who I am. I want this place to look 100% the best when people walk in here. And so if I see one speck of dirt, I'm going to get a vacuum cleaner. But I, I have to understand that as we grow, that there's leaders in this church that may not be called to a pulpit, but they're called to serve and that they can... They can just as easily vacuum that carpet. They can just as easily take out the trash. They can just as easily do things that I do. Dwight Moody taught that it was better to put 10 men to work than to try to do the work of 10 men. Church problems give us an opportunity to exercise our faith, but not only faith in the Lord, but also faith in our leaders and in each other. I'm going to tell you how this thing works. There's pastor, then there's leaders that work under him. So the pastor is naturally going to def defend and protect the leader. If the leader's wrong, that'll be dealt with between the pastor and the leader. God dealt with Moses privately when he handled a situation wrong. But you can never let the leader learn if you're always running interference. You have to let that leader get in situations where they have to use wisdom God gave them, that they have to figure out situations and problems. And if they mess it up, there's grace. There's an understanding church. There's a pastor that can help them learn. But if we never let our leaders face problems, they'll never learn how to handle problems. Is this good? The early church was not afraid 
to adjust their structure in order to make room for ministry. And it's a tragic thing when churches actually destroy ministry and hinder growth because they refuse to modify their structure. We can't be so concrete in how, well, this is how we've always done it. You know what? There was a time that the way you've always done it was new. There was a time when Amazing Grace was a new song. And somebody had to adapt to that. And it takes a mature church. And I'm thankful that this is a mature church. There's going to come a day when I may not get to make it to the hospital, but I send a lay minister to that hospital to pray for you. And it ought not be that somebody gets upset because we're making room for growth. If I had my way, I'd just come to everybody's house, just drop in all week, every week. But you know what wouldn't happen? This right here. Because I just, because I'm a social butterfly. I love visiting. I love, I love it. I love it. But if that's all I did, I'd be neglecting what God called me here to do, and that is to feed the sheep. Amen. Apostles, the apostles were not afraid to share their authority and ministry with others because they realized that authority and ministry come from God. I know men that were insecure leaders. And to a degree, everybody has insecurities, okay? But I, I know men that could never have an assistant pastor, had to do it all themselves. I know men that if the church started getting behind the evangelist during revival, they'd make him sit a service so they could preach. People could get behind them. Then they let the evangelist preach again. Now, is that insecure? You know what? When I bring a preacher in here, I want the church to get behind him. I don't want him to get up here and have to struggle and trudge through quickstand to, to preach. And there hadn't been a preacher coming here yet that, that y'all have sat on. And that's the way it needs to be. I want them to do better than I could do. If, if, if I don't want this to sound wrong, but I want to bring in people who are better than me. If I didn't think they could out-preach me, or out, I wouldn't bring them in here. Unless they're just learning and then give them grace. But I want to bring in people that are better than me because it brings the church to a better place. Amen? Amen. So here's the job description of the ministry and of the pastor. Give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Amen. This is what happens. Look at when they adjusted their methods and they started delegating. Here's the result. And the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. When we have the ability to change our mind about Church has always just got to be pastor does it all. Pastor does it all. Pastor can't do it all. No pastor. I guess if you're running 20 or 30, you could, you might could try to carry the load. But when you've got 200 to 215, 220, one man can't do it all. 
And when we, when we adjust our structure, then you're going to see the blessings of God come upon the church. Amen. So let's continue reading, Brother, Brother Brandon. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and came upon him, and caught him, and brought him to the council, and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place, and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that said in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. The emphasis in Stephen's life is on fullness. The Bible says he was full of the Holy Ghost. He was full of wisdom. He was full of faith. He was full of power. And in Scripture, to be full of means to be controlled by. So Stephen was a God-controlled man who had a huge impact on his church. But watch this. He was not one of the leaders. Which shows you that God can use people who are not necessarily preachers. He can use anybody who will make themselves available. Jews who had returned from many nations resided in Jerusalem in their own quarters and some of these ethnic groups had their own synagogues. You got to remember, going to the synagogue in that day did not mean going to church because the synagogues were opposed to church. They didn't want to hear the message of that new covenant that would take the place of their own religion, which had now become little more than a ritual. You know, there's a lot of people that are doing that today. They're going to their own synagogues. They may call it a church, but it's ritualism. They don't want to hear anything about a Holy Ghost or a New Testament or a New Covenant. And it's the same principle that applies right here. And because of Stephen's powerful testimony, some of his own countrymen viciously opposed him and they set up false witnesses against him. But God used even these circumstances to build his church. This is what John 15 says, verse 18. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. In other words, if you were of the world, they would accept you. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for not my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. I'll give you just a, a classic example. 
There's a reason that Christian music is not the most popular genre out there. I'm not even talking about Holy Ghost-filled, truth-believing people. But you just look at the overall genres of music. Christian music is the minority compared to all of the other genres. It's because Satan controls music. He is music. And he never lost his ability. He just turned it to be anti-Christ. And all of these people, all of the most popular singers, don't you doubt for a minute that they are influenced and controlled by Satan and by the spirit world. You take someone that may start off so pure, seemingly pure, you give it time, keep going down the road, and you'll see a transformation happen physically because of they sold their soul to achieve that level of fame. They had to make some commitments that were not pleasing to the Lord in order to gain the notoriety in the world. And Jesus said, don't you think for a minute that because you're following me that they're going to accept you. If they were of you, they'd embrace you. But because you're following me, they're going to reject you. Amen. Verse 15 says in Acts 6, And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now chapter 7 contains Stephen's response to the Jewish council. It's the longest address in the book of Acts. And in it, he reviews some of the highlights of Israel's history to show them that their forefathers at first rejected some of the very men that they now claim to revere. Watch this. Each of the people mentioned is a type of Christ in some way. And most were rejected by Israel the first time that they appeared to them. Most were then exalted by God and then accepted by Israel. And each one reveals Israel's failure to listen to one sent from God. The point is that there is significance in the second time. So let's start with verse number one. This is Stephen's address or response to this council. And this talks about Abraham, verse number one through eight. Then said the high priest, are these things so? And he said, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he d- dwelt in Sharan, and said unto him, Get thee out of this country, and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans, and went and d- dwelt in Sharan. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land, where ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spake on this wise, that his seeds should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that, they shall come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. 
So he starts with the father of the faithful, the patriarch of faith. He starts with Abraham. And he's, the first time Abram's father, Terah, set out for Canaan, but only got as far as Haran and decided to live there until he died. That was the first time God was calling. And Haran means burnt place. He started on the journey, and then we could say he stopped at burnout, a burnt place. There's a lot of people not living for God, but they started on the journey, but they stopped at burnout. You got you to remember, people get burnt out when they, stopped, when they start trying to do for God without being yoked with God. Do you remember Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, learn of me? The symbolism is, in the farming community, which that was what they were familiar with, that Mature ox could pull 5,000 pounds, but they would yoke it with a young ox who could pull 2,000 pounds. And together they could pull 10,000 pounds. And after it got trained, up to 15,000 pounds because it was yoked with someone that was stronger than it was. And it was learning. And what happens is people get burnt out when they stop being yoked with Christ. And they start trying to carry all of it on themselves. And Jesus said, hey, this wasn't designed for you to do it all by yourself. You're supposed to be yoked with me and let me carry. Why do you think he said, casting all our care upon him? For he cares for us. So, so Terah stopped at Haran, but the second time God spoke his great covenant to Abram, and he set out for a land that he had never seen. Now let's look at Joseph, verse number 9. And the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him, and delivered him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's, Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his, fathers, his father Jacob to him and all his kindred three score and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried over into Sechem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Sechem. So the first time, Joseph was rejected by his brethren, betrayed for pieces of silver, and falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. But the second time, Joseph is exalted to the throne of Egypt, given a name, Zaphnath Paneh. One man said it means Savior of the world, to which every knee bows and accepted by his brethren. The first time he was rejected, the second time he was accepted. Go on to Moses. 
But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose, which knew not Joseph, that dwelt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end that they might not live. In which time Moses was born, and was exceeding fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that, he was, that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he, he supposed his brother would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at, <clears throat> at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst kill the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled, and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou, thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groanings, and am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt." This Moses whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. Stand with me right now. <clears throat> the first time Moses narrowly escaped being slain, took off running to the wilderness. There he birthed two children. But the second time, he went in the name of I am that I am. First time he was rejected. But the second time, he would lead Israel out of Egyptian bondage with miracles, signs, and wonders. There's a theme that's reoccurring here. First time, rejection. But the second time, acceptance. And I hate that we're coming to a close as far as the time because we're just now getting to the good part. But you think on that theme. First time, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. But there's a second time that that son of man's going to come. And Bible says he's not going to be rejected the second time. He was rejected the first time. 
and he had to go to those Gentiles and start pulling them into that vine. But friend, every eye is going to see him. Every eye is going to behold him. And when he comes, he's not coming as a baby, but he's coming as a mighty king who will execute judgment, who will set up a throne, and he will be accepted by those Jews. Aren't you thankful for that Savior of the world? Oh, clap your hands and magnify the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen, amen. Lord bless you. Take just a few moments.